You're listening to Scalay Sisters, episode number eight. Welcome to Scalay Sisters, the podcast for the classical homeschooling mama who seeks to learn and grow while she's helping her children learn and grow. Scalay Sisters is a casual conversation about topics that matter to those of us in the trenches of classical homeschooling who yearn for something more than just checking boxes and getting it all done. I'm your host, Brandi Vensel. You can find me at Afterthoughts, that's my main blog, and also Teaching Reading with Bob Books, which is where I keep my line of printable phonics lessons. Today's co-host is Misty Winkler. Misty is a second-generation homeschooler with five kids and a love for projects. She writes about feeding a family at Simplified Pantry, about homeschooling and homemaking at Simply Convivial, and about organizing attitudes at Simplified Organization. This episode is sponsored by Plan Your Year. Plan Your Year is the homeschool planner that shows you how. It walks you step-by-step through creating a homeschool plan unique to your home, your kids, your family. There are over 40 printable planning pages, plus an 80-page planning guide where Pam walks you through creating your plan. Nothing ever expires, and you get free updates every year. It's the only homeschool planner you will ever need. Check out a free sample pack of planning pages and more info at freehomeschoolplanner.com. In today's episode, Misty and I use Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics to discuss the connection between habits and virtue, and then proceed to convince ourselves to work on shoring up good habits over the summer to pave the way for a better school year. We also discuss a question on assessment sent to us by Amanda Venema from hisnewday.com. And a big shout out to Amanda for being the first to use our recorded message system. So... Habits, virtue, summer, assessment, what's not to like? This is a fun way to wrap up season one of the podcast. And so, without further ado, let's get to it. Want to just start off with our Scalé RDA? That sounds good. All right. You want to go first? Since you haven't been here for a while. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that means that I've read something, so that's handy. <laughs> yeah, so actually a couple weeks ago, it was our break week, and I was sick. You know, just spent a day and a half in bed, kind of oh, wow. icky feeling. But it meant that I could actually finish a novel. I'd started it, and I was able to finish it because I was just resting, and it was lovely, actually, except for mm. feeling sick. So I read The Baronet's Song by George MacDonald. I've read his children's stories, you know, the princess and Curdy, yeah, and the princess and the goblin, and I enjoyed those. Is it the light princess? Yeah, and I have my parents' copies of a couple of George Macdonald's adult stories, but I've never picked them up. And I think partly it's because the covers were definitely done in the seventies. <laughs> I'm <was> like, nah, <laughs> this doesn't look very appealing. <laughs> Not that we would ever judge a book. It, yeah, it was a case of that. <laughs> but I flipped it out. I was like, you know, I really should read these. 
not only did C.S. Lewis read George MacDonald, and you know, George MacDonald was very influential to C.S. Lewis, but also G.K. Chesterton and there were a couple others too, but they read and loved George MacDonald. It's like, okay, well, can't be bad then, right? (laughs) We might actually get smarter. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a very compelling story and actually a very easy read. It was not difficult at all. And partly I think that was because this edition was the Moody Press edition updated because, you know, he was Scott. And so a lot of it was written with the Scott dialect. Uh And so the edition that Moody put out cleaned a lot of that up, made it (laughs) modern spelling and sentence structure. So it flows and reads very easily. Nice. Is it fantasy like his other? I would say it's a modern fairy tale. Okay. It's set in what would be a modern day average. uh, I don't know if it's actually a real place or not, but Scott small villages. So it's not set in some kind of otherworldly place. I think it helped that I knew George MacDonald did like fairy tales. And C.S. Lewis is always talking about how he got his sense of fairy from George MacDonald. Because if you just read it like a normal novel, I'd say it has terrible theology. <laughs> oh, really? The main character, Sir Gibby, he's basically perfect. He is without sin. <laughs> Really? And so if you just read it where you're like, okay, this is like a real character and supposed to be real life, then the story just does not work at all. Hmm. But with that fairy element, it was really almost like showing by contrast just how much shot through with sin we all are. Unless you have a foil for that, sometimes you can't even see. And what would it even look like to always respond to people in love? So just having those kind of situations where it brings concepts to life with situations where, you know, he's constantly being wronged, but never responding wrongly. I mean, he's a Christ figure in that he... That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, he is in that he is perfect and he does help people, but it also has the gospel all through it. Like it is modern day and he kind of has... Not so much a conversion experience, but he comes to a point where the scripture is presented to him. He comes to realize that that's the source of goodness. So it definitely points to God and Christ and Gibby is a person underneath that. But I think it's just a neat story showing the contrast between responding selfishly and what responding in self-sacrificing love would really look like. And so whenever he sacrifices himself... It's always out of selfless love, but never in any kind of ultimate sense. It's always in very temporal. And then the ending was very unexpected. So that was fun. That's always good. <laughs> so I highly recommend it. It's a short little novel and a great story if you know you kind of keep that fairy element in mind. You'll have to help me find the link to the version that you're reading since you have this I don't want to say corrected either. I don't know. I, this modernized, <laughs> I guess, version or updated. Yeah. Yes. So I can put it in there, but also so I can get it myself because I'm always looking for good fiction for summer. I try to read fiction in the summer yeah. because apparently I can't pay attention to my children when I'm reading fiction. It can be really dangerous. It is. <laughs> yes. You know, we always start off summer with two weeks of swimming lessons and I always have a stack of books that I try to get through. <laughs> oh man, so. I'm looking forward to swimming lessons where I don't have to pay attention. <laughs> yes. Swimming lessons. It is amazing. <laughs> okay, how about you? Okay, so yesterday I had a day off the whole entire day. I mean, my parents even babysat in the evening. So it was oh, all wow. 
day. I took my children to my parents' house at 8.15. And then my friend and I were going to Santa Monica to see a movie that shall remain nameless because it's controversial. (laughs) (laughs) If you read my blog, you already know what it is. But that's not the point. She's a good friend to travel with. She likes to talk more ideas and issues than people, which is fun. Mm -hmm. So we talked politics and homeschooling and all those kinds of things. It was really fun. She homeschools also. And so Santa Monica is, oh gosh, without traffic over two hours from here and with traffic even farther. So we spent a lot of time in the car. My stress levels were sort of way higher than normal. And so if I ever really felt like I needed a day off, it was it was yesterday. <laughs> After and all. you had one. That's wonderful. I think that the car ride on those kind of things is a huge part of the whole yes. fun of the day out. I totally agree. All right. So our topical discussion today is the connection between habits and virtue with a focus on summer. We're going to use Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle. Because we should not be afraid (laughs) to read the classics. (laughs) We'll link to that episode in the show notes. And so if you are afraid to read the classics, you can go back and listen to that first. (laughs) We're using, what's the section? Mine had an index. And that was very handy. That's the only oh, reason why I knew what to read. Uh, it was 1103A through B, 1152A, and 1179B to 1180A. And I have no idea what the numbering system means, but I was able to find those sections. I looked at my table of contents. It never dawned on me to do this before, but I will say mine's divided into books. So if someone yes. has one divided into books, it's book two. But only particular sections of Only specific sections, yes. Yes. But I read the whole thing just in case. Overachiever. (laughs) Neener, neener. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in my book two, chapter two is called Habituation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my edition has books and chapters and these line numbers. And these like in the thousands markings that I don't understand, but that's what the index uses to tell you where to find things. And a little symbol with numbers between almost every paragraph. And that is actually to refer you to the notes in the back with their interpretation of what it means. Oh. So the first time I picked up this book and flipped through it, I was like, there are almost as many numbers on this thing as words. And I don't understand. So I'm not going to start reading it. (laughs) But. When I overcame that and actually read it, it was very good. <laughs> Who is your translator on yours? You told me to buy the Terrence Irwin. One. Okay. And that's the one with a ton of numbers everywhere. Really? I also bought one by Joe Sachs, and it looks clean. It has the same numbering, except no notes. It's just footnotes. Okay. So it looks cleaner. The printing looks nicer. But I actually did like the readability of the Irwin one better. I like the formatting of the Saks one and the translation of the Irwin one. (laughs) I'll have to look at the Saks one. Now that I've read this one, I'm thinking I might just collect a few good translations of this. (laughs) It's always interesting to compare. Okay, so I'm going to just read the very, very beginning of book two, subsection 2.1, I guess, how a virtue of character is acquired. I think it's a good Hmm. place to start off. That's a numbering mine doesn't have. (laughs) We So we have the same translator, but it's not exactly the same. That's it must not be the same edition. It says, virtue then is of two sorts, virtue of thought and virtue of character. Virtue of thought arises and grows mostly from teaching and hence needs experience and time. Virtue of character, for example, of ethos results from habit, ethos, hence its name ethical, slightly varied from ethos. 
So there's virtue of thought, there's virtue of character. What we're talking about is virtue of character. So something that can be done through muscle memory. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting distinction. And because later then he gives a couple examples of what would be a virtue of thought and how it is different from a virtue of character. I can't remember. What were one of the examples that he gave? I'm trying to find it. Oh, you know what? It's right above. So he says that some virtues are called virtues of thought, others of character. Okay, that's a repetition. Wisdom, comprehension, and prudence are called virtues of thought, and generosity and temperance, virtues of character. For when we speak of someone's character, we do not say that he's wise or has good comprehension, but that he's gentle or temperate. Hmm. Mine, instead of wisdom, comprehension, and prudence, says intelligence. Hmm. Same translator twice. (laughs) Maybe he redid his translation. (laughs) He must have. That's interesting. Okay, that kind of makes sense to me. I mean, because I do think of, you know, wisdom coming from study, lots of pondering and reflecting. Yeah, what's happening in your mind, your ideas. So those virtues of thought come from teaching which I thought was interesting. But then there's something different. There's also virtue of character. And the virtues of character are really based on your actions, like what you're actually doing in the real world, real life, and not just what you're thinking or how you think. Yes. I liked his summary. So he's talking about that. And oh, goodness, it's like two pages over for me. I don't know where it would be on yours, but it's in the conclusion where he says the importance of habituation He says, to sum up then in a single account, a state of character arises from the repetition of similar activities. Hence, we must display the right activities. It is not unimportant then to acquire one sort of habit or another right from our youth. Rather, it is very important, indeed, all important. Yes. Which I thought was just a good correction because I know I've thought before and I've met people. I've had conversations before where there's this sense of, well, this child's just going through a stage. And, you know, we can just muddle through the stage. And sometimes that is true. But on the other hand, whatever is repeated becomes the habit. So yeah, they can be going through a stage where they're having a particular temptation or a particular difficulty. Mm -hmm. But that being a stage doesn't make it good or okay. Like it's still it just means that's what we have to deal with right now. We can't ignore it. But if that's the stage they're going through, then that's what we're dealing with. And it's just a process. But we can't just let it go. I think when I've had that conversation before, come to think of it, has been, I don't know, around my house, four-year-olds lie. They always have. I don't have any four-year-olds anymore. But that's about the age where they realize that you don't know everything. (laughs) So disappointing when they come to that conclusion. (laughs) And so they start to experiment with lying. Mm -hmm. And a conversation I had with someone one time, and and I toyed with in my mind with my oldest, was this idea that, well, lying's a stage. We don't really need to worry about it. It'll clear itself up. And I've since come to the conclusion that that's only partially true. Lying is a stage. When children figure out that you don't know everything, then they experiment with telling stories. And not all stories are lies, I don't think. Some children are just being imaginative or whatever. But if we don't correct deception, then children can get into a habit of lying that goes on and on and on. Mm -hmm. So their phase brings up what it is we have to be dealing with at that time. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I have a three-year-old right now, so we are dealing with... She doesn't lie. She whines. (laughs) (laughs) But you still know everything, so that's consolation. (laughs) (laughs) And I also have a (laughs) 12-year-old. No comment. (laughs) 
this was actually one section where I preferred the sax translation. Okay. It makes no small difference then to be habituated in this way or in that straight from childhood, but an enormous difference, or rather,、mm. all the difference. That's very convicting. And so that's really what Charlotte Mason was talking about when she wrote all that she wrote on habits. I think the only thing she really added was that the physiologists of her day started to believe that there were actual physical tracks made in the brain, which we now know is true. Yes, that was being more speculated on in her time. And I think that's the only thing that she added. Before that, it was seen as sort of hypothetical. Maybe part of your body kind of remembered how to do it in the way that it would remember how to ride a bicycle. But I don't think the understanding of the material portion of the brain. So really, all she added was a kind of a scientific speculation on the basis. Also, as an answer to the previous era's idea that that kind of habituation that happens when we're young arises from genetics. So Oliver Twist is just. An angel because he has good genes, right? Their their character <laughs> shows that clearly they are the princess. They had、right. good manners, such so naturally. <laughs> <laughs> right, and that's the whole thing in Les Misérables too is attacking that belief that、hmm. you know the criminals had to be criminals, and so we should lock them up because no one can change their heritage, their genetics. I don't think I ever made that connection before. That is fascinating. We should talk about the relationship of habit and character. I mean, I don't think it's controversial to say something like, not that it's super controversial. Anything we're going to say, but I have struggled myself with, you know, a child can learn to be orderly by the practice of being orderly. That's why we help them learn to clean their rooms or whatever. <laughs> Varying degrees of success. Right, right. <laughs> I'm still a work in progress. We'll just say that. But my husband's not here.、Uh, <laughs> he might start booing me. Yeah, <laughs> or just laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure he thinks it's funny. <laughs> Anyways, I'm sitting here with my very messy desk. When we start talking about things that we think of as sin issues, in the past, I really struggled with this idea that the difference between a, a liar and a truth teller was habit. It's been sort of a battle to get into a place where I'm comfortable with this. I know Charlotte Mason said something about 99 out of every hundred actions being governed by habit,、mm -hmm. and so most of the time we're not making decisions. And somehow that really helped me when I was struggling with a child that was having tantrum, but it, it was an older child that was having anger outbursts, things, and realizing that we'd actually gotten into—I think I called it our bad day pattern.、Mm -hmm. Yes, at one point that child made a conscious decision to erupt in anger inappropriately, but by the time I was actually dealing with it, I don't think any decisions were being made. It was just、right. a train on the rails. The second that I did the one thing that was the trigger,、mm -hmm. it pulled the trigger, and then that was it. Yeah, <laughs> the bullet was out of the gun, and so I had to backtrack to my habit, the cue, the trigger. Yes, exactly. Because you have to cut that off. Yes. Right, but you can't really access what's happening, you know, talk about it or change it until you first figure out what the trigger is and stop that, and then、yes. you it like diffuses it so that you can actually have a reasonable conversation. Perhaps yes, we've had those things also. <laughs> anyway, it took me a long time to get into this place where I was comfortable with the idea of habit and character. This isn't a theological thing where we're trying to, you know, make our children perfect without Jesus or something like that. Because、mm -hmm. I feel like you can get into that area where it's part of the holiness movement or something. It's more a recognition of our humanity. Like this is just how we work. Yes, 
And so then we can leverage how we work to make life better and more peaceful and efficient and all those different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was interesting how he's not saying that character is habit or that habit is character, but that the two are completely linked. Yeah. That character will have habits. Like you don't have character unless you have the habit of acting in a certain way. So you don't have the character of honesty unless you have the habit, unless it's normal to you. It's just automatic that you tell the truth. If you're fighting for it all the time, you need to, but that's not yet your character until it becomes something that's normal to you. Yes, that was frustrating to me because it made me realize what a bad person I am. I know. (laughs) Right. And he pretty much says, you know, if you're doing something and you can analyze whether or not it's virtuous based upon how you feel about what you're doing. And I lots of times drag myself kicking and screaming to do whatever the quote, Mm -hmm. the right thing is in that context. Mm -hmm. But I'm not necessarily on board. Yeah. (laughs) Fighting with my inner two year old all the time. All the time. Oh my gosh. And Aristotle says that does not count as virtue. (laughs) Until you want to do it. And that's where the training affections comes in, because then in the next section where he's talking about the virtue is when you find pleasure in doing the right thing, not where you're dragging yourself, where it's painful to do the right thing and you do it anyway. That's still something we need to do, but we haven't arrived yet until we actually like it. And so he says, uh, that's why we need to have the appropriate upbringing right from early youth, as Plato says, to make us find enjoyment or pain in the right things, for that is correct education. Hmm. I'm wondering also, though, for those of us who are trying to reform ourselves as adults, well, mm-hmm. and even our children will have to continually reform themselves. I'm wondering if there is something connected. You know, he talked about the virtue of thought versus the virtue of character, but it seems like some of that internal battle is dealing really with the virtue of thought. So I'm physically doing the right thing, but I don't necessarily have the right mindset about it. So I'm wondering if there is some sort of remedy in reading good books. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I just, I'm thinking because I remember as a young mom, actually being able to enjoy certain things more by reading about really good moms. Oh yeah. You know, the virtuous moms in that are almost ridiculously good, but some of Laura Ingalls Wilder's description. Exactly. (laughs) We can't all be ma ma (laughs) Or Louisa May Alcott's description of a lot of the mothers in her writing, the virtuous wise mom that actually did help change my mindset about certain things. I don't know. So inspiring mm-hmm. to read about these perfect women. <laughs> I, I've written before on how there were a couple novels that actually worked the most to change my underlying mindset about cleaning the house from thinking, you know, this is all stupid, pointless waste of time because it's just undone all the time to seeing how and why it matters. I read nonfiction and fiction. Well, actually, I read nonfiction on that. I was like, yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> Probably wrong. (laughs) I can agree or disagree with that. But when there were characters that were very compelling and it dawning on me that the way they kept their house was revealing something about their character. And I guess that brings us back to their habit. It was their habits of living revealed their character. How were the habits that I was living out? What were those communicating about my character? I didn't really like that. So one thing Elizabeth Elliot wrote in Let Me Be a Woman, the way you keep your house, the way you organize your time, the care you take in your personal appearance, the things you spend your money on all speak loudly about what you believe. The beauty of thy peace shines forth in an ordered life. A disordered life speaks loudly of disorder in the soul. Hmm. 
ouch. Wow. I was arguing with that in my mind, trying to disprove it. And while I was wrestling with that, then I read these novels that pretty much demonstrated through story. It's actually very true. But I think it's a good point to bring up, you know, we as moms are working on our habits and virtue and all these things and not just see it as something that we are doing to our kids or trying to make happen for them where we are just the orchestrator and not a part of it. I think kids pick up on hypocrisy Mm. like nothing else. And so, I mean, it's just right and good for us to be working on ourselves first or focusing on our own needs, what we need to be learning and growing, you know, obeying God more and more and growing in virtue for ourselves first. And then it spreads out to the kids instead of seeing like, there's no hope for me, but there's still hope for them. So if we just lay out this habit plan, life is going to be easy for them or for me because they're good. Right. (laughs) So that makes my life easier. Right. As I've tried to really think about aging, it seems like people just become more of who they already are. Mm -hmm. So if we're not careful to fight it, we might become the worst version of ourselves. That's another motivation for us to keep working on our own habits is because Mm -hmm. if we can take our bad habits that we have now to their logical conclusion, is that really what we want to look like when we're 85 or something? Yeah, no kidding. I just feel like it could totally become that if we let ourselves slide. You get more of what you water. Ooh, that's wisdom right there. Okay, well, you said in our our notes as we were prepping that summer is a good time to shore up habits. Why? Why summer? Why ruin my summer, Misty? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what has struck me is how much attention and work it takes to build habits. It's very hard. A lot of times I know moms worry about summer or break weeks or any kind of break where you don't have the school routines being a time where everything slides. Yeah. And so having some kind of plan to work on habits is a way to prevent that sliding. Like you still have a purpose. You're not doing school, but that doesn't mean everything's a free for all. Mm -hmm. And you have more attention. You have, you know, a little bit more energy reserves to be following through on things. And so if we can work on those habits that will smooth our school days, but we don't really have time to address them all while we're trying to get our school done, we can do that during the summer and, you know, it'll actually smooth the way for the next school year. Well, I know I also feel like it's a good time to switch things up Mm -hmm. in the sense of who is doing what chore. Right. That's a a really big one for me because if I try to do that in in the middle of the year and I have before, because those habits are part of the school day, it messes up the school day to try to change them mid-year. And it takes time to teach them the new chores. And so then your school day is later and yeah. We pretty much set everything in the summer for what's going to happen during the whole school year. And they just know for nine months, you're going to do whatever these assignments are that you learned in the summer. And then from there, you only have to do it for like nine, 10 months. And then we go to summer and we reassess everything. Yes. Right now, I know some of the changes that I'm going to make to our chore routine. Like, okay, this person needs a different job. I would like my other child who can actually do this job better to do this job. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm trying to wait. You can make it six more weeks. (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah. I'm trying not to think about it. Well, actually, right now, with all the chaos in our house, because we are still having workmen coming and all of that. And so I kind of console myself with, there's going to be a lot that has to be done when all these people are out of our house. So, (laughs) (laughs) oh. 
Okay, so you work on chores. I work on chores. Mm-hmm. Are your chores like mine? I mean, we assign for, like I said, the year pretty much unless we get into the school year and it's very evident that something needs to be changed, which does occasionally happen. But pretty much we sit down, make a list of all the chores that the children are responsible, all the children, everything that mm-hmm. is done by children. Yeah. And then we kind of, it's a combination of me trying to assign what I think is best for someone with them getting to maybe choose their favorite job, right? which works unless two of them have the same favorite job. And then we have a lot of fun. That's tricky. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We pretty much did, you know, you have the same job even for multiple years when we had mostly younger kids because there's only certain things. Right. I didn't have that many options. It was, well, once you're two or so, two and three-year-olds empty the garbages because it feels helpful, it's not essential, and they are building that habit of helping in the morning. Right. And then you graduate up to helping by putting the silverware away with the, you know, the dishwasher load. And then you're emptying the dishwasher entirely. And then maybe you learn to load the dishwasher. And so the jobs that kids could do were pretty limited. And so it's just stayed in the same like three things. It was pretty clear who could do it. Then last year, I realized, you know, I have a 10-year-old, an 11-year-old. I could actually give them some real work. And (laughs) for a while, I tried my five-year-old at that time. Now he's six. I tried to give him emptying the dishwasher because all my other five-year-olds emptied the dishwasher. But I decided that I wanted to keep my dishes and not replace them, you know, every few months. (laughs) So crazy. (laughs) (laughs) He washed the breakfast table. (laughs) Good idea. But I felt like I was wasting my older child's work. (laughs) Like, you could be doing something bigger. We went through kind of a more upheaval time. We're just trying to figure out what people could do. So sometimes there are those transition points where it takes some back and forth. This last year, it's stayed pretty stable. Okay, so what are some other habits that we can work on in the summer? I really feel like I've just been wiped out by my flood. I usually have a real good vision for summer's coming and this is what we're going to work on. And I feel like I've been so wiped out by that, that other than our normal, it's our, it's a habit of redoing the chores. I don't really have the vision of, you know, here are the family habits we're going to work on in the, and try to solidify for the summer so that we go into the school year better than we ended this year. And I just don't have mm-hmm. that. So what are some things that you're working on? Give me some ideas, Misty. I need some help here. (laughs) Well, like I said, I have a three-year-old. So right now, my attention, uh, you know, it's just come to my attention more and more lately that her habit is to whine for what she wants. Because I have my attention drawn in so many other directions. It seems like with the older ones, when they went through this phase, there's a lot more on the ball (laughs) and making them repeat it the right way and paying attention to their tone and all that. And number five, we have other things going on. It's more like, oh, sure, you can have the banana. (laughs) Just go eat it at the table (laughs) or just go take it outside, whatever. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I need to be paying attention to what she's saying and how she's saying it. And every time make her repeat it the right way before she gets what she's asking for. And sometimes she needs to be told that she can't have what she wants and be able to handle that a little more gracefully. (laughs) And that'll take all summer. Well, and it won't derail your school day to practice that with her because there's no school. Right. I'm trying to still do it now, but we have strategies for just not having to deal with it. Go read books. Go outside. (laughs) 
what are you going to work on for yourself? I know I'm going to try to increase my exercise. I have some good habits I've built this year, but I want to add some more things. What are you going to do? I feel like I need to build more reading habits into my day. Mm -hmm. That's one of the first things that I let slide when I feel like I have all these things I could be doing and just having a time where that happens. You know, I'm mostly sleeping through the night. I'm not in that newborn needy phase anymore, but sometimes it's hard to realize that if I put in the effort, I really could arrange my day with a little bit more intention and not just fly by the seat of my pants or say, okay, what do I want to do most right now? But to really give myself some dedicated time for reading and then make it happen. I'm great at making the plan, but then actually following through on it. You have to work That's the plan. That's so good. You have to work the plan. It's so obnoxious. <laughs> My husband will say, I think I read on a blog once. <laughs> yeah, it's continual. Always, always. It never lets up. I think I need to work on my housework habits this summer also. That's continual also. Mm-hmm. I never let that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and t- yeah, and all these things kind of change too. It's not like, okay, I can work on this for three months and then for the rest of my life, it will be in place. <laughs> but, you know, we're at a place right now where I worked out housework routines that worked pretty well for quite a while, but we are no longer at one load of laundry every day. It's more like two loads of laundry every day. Yeah. And every once in a while, we have to run two loads in the dishwasher. When it you have the, okay, we do it this at this time and this at this time, and that fits our flow. And when you add something more in, it's like, okay, that totally disrupted. It just messes up those routines and makes it more difficult than it probably should be. No, it's true. I remember when I switched to two loads a day and, and then still maybe three or four on Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, what's that called? Like I entered a state of disequilibrium. Yeah. Where I couldn't figure out how to remember even the different parts of the job. So I would all of a sudden, you know, there is a load I was supposed to put in the dryer, you know, three hours ago. And so now I can't fold it right now at my planned time because I forgot to switch it to the dryer when I was supposed to. And it is interesting how it feels like, well, I have a habit of doing laundry. What's the big deal of doing two loads versus one? But uh, your body doesn't remember. (laughs) Your Mm -hmm. brain doesn't remember. So I think this summer is a good time to think through those situations and evaluate what's changed, what would would work better now. I mean, summer, you have a little bit more time, but it is a little bit more in flux. If you take a lot of vacations or there are other things like swimming lessons and nothing else happens in life except swimming lessons when those are running. And well, so and then you have to run your dishwasher five times because for some reason that makes them really hungry. Yes. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> yes. I'm like, I'm more laundry. <laughs> gosh, it's so true. I'm like, how can you people be this hungry? Oh, which is back to my complaint about they eat three times a day. Why is this? <laughs> <laughs> if we could change that habit, we might be ahead. <laughs> Seriously. Didn't the Romans only eat twice a day? I feel like I read that one time. Uh, there's precedent somewhere. You guys are learning Latin. You should eat like Romans. <laughs> and there are an overwhelming number of good habits that we all could learn. And I mean, I think Charlotte Mason, does she have a list? Or am I thinking of, is it just simply Charlotte Mason has taken Charlotte Mason's writings and made a list? There's a list out there. 
I don't know if Simply Charlotte Mason's is her own thing or if it's based on Charlotte Mason's writings, but I know in at least volume one, and there might be multiple volumes, but for volume one, for sure, there are lists of habits. So there are, I think she calls them mental habits, but they're, they're sort of like academic habits that you can have. And there are right. physical habits that you can have. So she has different categories. And then she has these lists of habits. And she pretty much says that the first habit is the habit of obedience. Yes. That's huge. And it's really hard when we don't realize that with our oldest children until they're three or four. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying I learned that the hard way, but. (laughs) Okay, it was me. Uh, Someone I know. (laughs) Really good. Very well. So, I mean, not that he was completely disobedient, but I felt like we had to go backwards because I just had not realized how important that was as a first thing. Mm-hmm. And it gets harder as you go on down the line, too, because you think, didn't didn't we already learn this? Oh, wait, right. I have to teach you? I've already taught this four times. <laughs> you should just know inherently, because I've said it enough times in my life, but you should. You should have gotten that in utero. <laughs> <laughs> Does it work that way? <laughs> it turns out. Turns out that's not a good strategy. (laughs) Well, I know I think that if someone's been having a really tough year, and you can tell me what you think about this, I think it would really pay to spend some time trying to walk through the day and figure out if there are any habits that would pack the most punch. Because you just said, you know, there are all these habits. I mean, there are so many habits and we can't work on a million habits in one summer. But I know like, this is going to sound so lame, but there was one year that my children were letting so many flies in the house that I just was wanting to scream. Like I felt like I spent all day killing flies. It felt unsanitary to make my food and they were bothering me. (laughs) And it was like, I'd kill them all. And then someone would open the door and leave it open. And next thing I knew the house was full again. It was like, I hadn't done anything. So one of the best things we did was that that summer, everybody got trained. I mean, there was even a certain door that they just did not go out of (laughs) because it was too hard for them at that age. It was a heavy door. So it was too hard for them to close it fast enough. And so we actually changed kind of their route through the house as they were heading outside. And so did you do drills or was it just reminding? Well, you know, Charlotte Mason has an example in one of her books of some of the I was going to say like closing the door. That's like ultimate Charlotte Mason habit training right there. So funny (laughs) because, you know, it's not, I mean, we have a, we have a house that actually has very few doors, the never ending hallway sort of house. (laughs) (laughs) So... You know, so when I first read that, I was like, how straight, you know, then someone tells me, well, it was like a Victorian courtesy or whatever to close a door when you left a room. But I remembered that when we were having this problem. And so I really did park it by the door. I brought a book. I brought a journal. I brought water. I brought iced tea. I was camping out next to the door. And when I saw children walking to the wrong door, the heavy door, they were redirected. And when they went outside, they were reminded to close the door quickly. And they really were all on board because they all agreed that having that many flies in the house was not good for us. (laughs) Good for the peace and sanity in our home. Well, so that's why it's a good thing to do in the summer because you can do that. You can park yourself there and it's okay that that's like the only thing that happens today. (laughs) To get back to my original point, I feel like that's kind of a silly thing, but it was something that really bothered me. And I found myself losing patience with children and situations because I found that really stressful. And so as dumb or silly as it seemed, that was actually a real game changer for me for us to learn to lower that problem. We can't eliminate Mm -hmm. it because of where we live, but to lower that problem in our home. And so I'm thinking that sometimes it can seem like a silly thing. It doesn't have to be this, you know, so important thing. 
spending some time before we start summer kind of trying to evaluate and see, you know, what in what ways are these days really falling apart? And is there something, especially if there's something that all of us mom and all the kids can all work on together because that's really efficient, right? Yes. So a lot of the more character minded ones are ones that we could all stand to reinforce. How do we speak to one another? You know, what's our family tone saying thank you, you know, being grateful. I think it works a lot better if we make it something we all do together and mom's on board and mom needs it just as much as anyone else. It's not like we are some superior being. We don't do ourselves any favors if we try to act like we are. Yes. You know, I don't know if you read Kendra Fletcher's post on being good yes. daughters. Yes, that was such a good post. It really was. Girls can be, they can start giving you attitude. <laughs> And it is so tempting to just give it back or not be as kind in our tone. And anyway, I just really appreciated that reminder. I'll post it in the show notes, this idea that um, how far we can go with just a habit of speaking kindly Mm -hmm. was a good reminder. All right. So I think we're ready for our nitty gritty homeschool question. And this one is from Amanda. So I'll play it. Amanda used our recording, (laughs) which is exciting. Hi there. This is Amanda Venema from hisnewday.com. And I have a question for you ladies. I'm wondering, what does assessment look like in your homeschool? And how do your practices reflect Charlotte Mason and or the classical tradition? Well, I think where we have to begin is what's the purpose of assessment? Yes. Okay. So that's something I've thought about quite a bit. I have always thought that most of the assessment done in schools was actually more of a need for communication. So teachers have a lot of students. They can't necessarily know how everyone really is doing. So the tests are partly to communicate from student to teacher. Mm-hmm. But then also the school or the teacher need to communicate with the parents. And then if it's a public school, there's a need to communicate with the state, right? Because they're, mm-hmm. they're getting tax dollars. And so there needs to be some way of assessing whether those dollars are being used responsibly or not. Not that I'm really in favor of all the testing that goes on, but I understand maybe a need for some sort of accountability. So I think a lot of that is eliminated when you're homeschooling. People have said things like, well, what about spelling tests? <laughs> and I'm sort of like... Mm-hmm. Well, what about it? I mean, my children do written narrations. I know who can spell and who can't. We don't Mm -hmm. need a spelling test. We might need a spelling curriculum based upon how they're doing with their spelling. I could tell you right now who can spell and who can't (laughs) in my house. (laughs) And it is not based on age. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Well, part of it is. A lot of time is wasted in the schools on testing. So much. And more than when we were kids. I mean, I remember the wasted hours in school when I was a kid. And it's worse than ever. We really have to back up and think about what is necessary because so much of it is unnecessary. I'm kind of even at a point where I don't know, especially in the younger years, if I really need to do a math test because I correct every worksheet. Yeah. I'm not sure why they need a test. Like, (laughs) I just, I don't know. Yeah, we don't do, we don't do math tests. They just have to do their work. Right. And they have to correct it if they get it wrong. Right. Every time. I think you were the one that introduced me to that. What's that online math? Oh, extra math? Yes. Love extra math. And so that does some of the quizzing stuff for us, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the math drill. Right. So it's like making arithmetic habit. Right. Yes. <laughs> True. So we don't need to communicate. We're both parent and teacher. A parent-teacher conference is like talking to ourselves, right? <laughs> Have a cup of coffee. Talk to yourself. It's not hard. Uh, <laughs> So then what would be the purpose or need? I don't want to say there's no need. So what would be the purpose or need of assessment in the homeschool? Because it's different. It's a completely different animal. 
Yeah. So it's not necessarily testing or grades. Assessment isn't probably the typical word that we use. No. We would probably say, do you do grades? Do you do tests? Do you keep records? What records or grades or tests do you keep? But all of those are really designed for some kind of assessment. So it goes back to instead of, you know, what grades, what records, what tests, what do we need to assess and what should mm -hmm. assessment look like? I know Andrew Kern says that assessment is to bless. I've heard him say that, but I've never heard him expand on that. Does he explain what he really means by that? Well, one thing that has always stuck with me that Cindy Rollins has said kind of in that vein is that our kids should hear from us, well done. And that just, well, it was like knife in the heart. I don't know. They usually hear not that from me. <laughs> But if if that's humanity's, or at least Christian's ultimate end is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, hmm. our assessment should kind of be modeled on that, on cultivating the taste for that. Like that is really what we desire. And so we can both tap into that, but also direct them towards that. Like that's everyone's final assessment. So all of our little assessments should be modeled on that. And so I think that's kind of what assessment as blessing is giving that well done. Okay, that makes sense. So assessment is sort of then feedback almost. Yeah. And encouragement. I guess it's a certain kind of feedback. But of course, it also has to be honest. So when a bad job has been done, we can't just say well done because... <laughs> yeah. And it's not feel good, self-esteem. Right. Yeah. But then modeling it on Christ's well done for us, I think also teaches us that we aren't looking for perfection because True. how can God say that to us? <laughs> because um, we didn't meet the bar. The only good that we did was from him. And so I think we can use that also in giving feedback to our kids and give them things that they can do well mm -hmm. and help them along and not say, okay, I'm going to dump you in the deep end and you have to swim. And it's my job to say, try harder <laughs> or keep going or well done if you do well, but it's all on you to do well. And I think that as teachers, we need to be kind of helping them along and not just putting it all on their shoulders and right. expecting them to carry it all. I'm not really familiar of how assessment has been done throughout history. Mm. And I don't know, I, you're, you know, you're reading that gigantic yes, book. The Great Tradition. <laughs> and so I would really love, I mean, I don't know if you've learned anything about assessment yet. I feel like the focus on testing is absent, but I have not been reading the specific book you're reading, which I think would be way more useful for this. You know, when I read old philosophers, and all, I mean, they're talking at a different, a completely different level. Yes. And the teaching is very personal. And so the teacher is, it's a lot more like homeschooling because it's more of tutoring and small groups. And it seems like the teacher can very easily assess the students in the sense of just making a judgment about where they're at right. and where they need work. Yeah, it's relational. So right. you're looking at the child in front of you and saying, this child needs X. Yes. So I'm going to make sure he gets X and right. not not say, okay, he's bad at X. Therefore, I'm going to give him a bad grade. That's going on his record and we move on. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. I think it's helpful to see everything on a continuum. Let's think about writing. We're working towards this ideal of being a really well-written, thoughtful person that can be beautiful and clear and, you know, and true mm -hmm. and all those things. And so, you know, that's the ultimate goal. We could probably have a number of examples of people who write that well, you know, so now I have this written narration in front of me that's badly spelled and doesn't have any capital letters and... <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and it's one sentence. And so there should have been at least five. And a lot of times assessment looks like so you just started written narration. You've spent a few weeks writing with my ones that have really struggled with written narration. So they have it all. But the ones that have, I'll actually rewrite it the right way because it's so badly spelled and it's so badly done grammatically that we can't just mark something up and rewrite one sentence. The whole thing has to be redone. Yeah. So they do rewrite it. But I'm thinking that doesn't completely solve the problem because the end product still says the same thing. It just says it correctly. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, we'll do a lot of, okay, well, you've done it. You know, you've done a few weeks of just writing one sentence. So now we're going to write two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you give them the small next step that they can succeed in. You don't hold it up to the ultimate standard and say, well, look how short you fell. (laughs) You get a 62. (laughs) Yes. And then when they write the two sentences after they've been only writing one, then they do get a well done. Yeah. You know, good job. You... (laughs) You wrote two sentences today, and that's a big deal for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Well, and even when I've taught writing classes with six or so students, when I did it for a co-op, I had to give grades. Mm-hmm. And I found it very difficult. And I don't think very helpful because yeah, you have the situation where you have, you know, I can't give the student that is a natural writer and does an excellent job. I'm getting these six paragraphs in, one from the very good natural writer and then another from one who struggles and I'm supposed to grade them all, well, the one who struggles with writing did better than what he had done before. Right. Putting a grade on it, it just bothered me. Yes. Well, and I will speak as someone, I was a natural writer as a child and just being in a classroom, it was not for years and years that I was challenged to write better. I know. I had one English professor. It was the second class I had with him. And I turned in a paper. Compared to what I knew he was getting from everyone else in the class, I felt like I should have definitely gotten an A. And it came back with a B. And it said, you can do better than this. What? (laughs) So angry. I know. It was. So when I do writing classes now, just informally in my own house with friends, kids, and my kids, I do not give number grades or letter grades. I give them feedback, and they have to work that feedback in and turn in a revised version. And so then each one is working where they need to work. Everyone learns that writing has to be revised, and there isn't the comparison. You know, I got this. What did you get? And then sometimes I think kids too just immediately turn to the grade and they don't really care about anything except the grade. And so if you refuse to give them one, then they have to actually, you know, be paying attention to what you're saying and, you know, what you have to revise and what you should improve. I know Charlotte Mason has a section on, you know, how grades kind of for the pleasers, you know, right. they, they're a crutch and they aren't really doing what they aren't very helpful. Right. And the more I've thought about it over the years, the more I agree with her, mm-hmm. even though I totally worked for grades as a student myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I see now how that was very limiting, actually. Yeah. So I, whatever work I am assessing, you know, they turn in copy work or writing or math pages or anything. Is this good work or does it need to be redone? Right. You know, is there something more you should do? Is this not your best work? Or did you get this problem wrong? Why did you get it wrong? Let's work it out. Then the focus is on taking the next step of improvement, not, all right, put the stamp on this page. Let's move on to the next. Yeah. 
I do think some of the purpose of assessment probably also is accountability. It's a way of keeping a student accountable for what they were supposed to be learning. And so I wonder Mm -hmm. if some of this constancy that we have in homeschooling, where lots of times, you know, like I'm sitting right there when my kids are doing the math. So there is no getting your homework back two days later that happens in school because it's just right there. They know, they just happen to know right away. And so maybe it doesn't feel as official. Right. (laughs) If you graded it later and gave them their assignment back with the things that need to be changed. They were accountable to get this worksheet done with math done perfectly. I don't think of it as assessment, I guess is what I'm saying, because it's just mixed into the day. It's just part of what we do. And so, you know, I think there's another element of assessment that we do as homeschool moms, too, that we aren't really aware of. And that's how we talk about our day or the school or our kids with our husbands. Like Mm -hmm. what? When we're telling him about how our days are going or what so-and-so needs, that's assessment too. I mean, it's not official or record keeping, but we are making a judgment. We're looking back and saying, this is where this person is. This is where this person is. This is where we're all failing. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that just really stood out to me when my husband moved from working in an office to working from home was when he worked from home, he actually got his own idea of what our days looked like. And (laughs) not my interpretation of what I would tell him during chats (laughs) or at the end of the day. And his idea was different than what I was saying. It was very sanctifying. <laughs> That's a very nice way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. Where the fault should have been put was not always the most accurate, shall we say. <laughs> So I think that's something we should be aware of, too. Like, it's, you know, the stories that we're telling ourselves or our husband are our interpretation of our days. That's our assessment. And, you know, we just need to pray that we have an accurate understanding of what's really going on and not hiding in our own story that might not be true. Yeah. That's a great point. That's probably a great way to kind of wrap it up is this idea of us being realistic with ourselves, maybe even about how we're doing as teacher. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, yeah. it, it can go both ways. Like some of us are too positive mm-hmm. about ourselves and some of us are too negative about ourselves. So being truthful is the key, not being harder or easier. Mm-hmm. Depending on who we are, we need correction in different directions. <laughs> so yes, I'm thinking with assessment that probably the best thing someone can do rather than listening to like, this is what I do, or this is what you do is thinking about what's the goal, trying to make sure that we're not just doing whatever because of social pressure or how we were taught or any of those kinds of things, but really thinking about what's the point (laughs) and then making sure what we're doing matches up with the point. Yeah. All right. I'm looking at the time. I think we should wrap this up. Yep. Well, thank you. Yeah, this was fun. It was fun. A good way to wrap up the season, I think. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of the sisterhood of the podcast. A big thank you to those of you who have been giving us those five-star reviews. Keep them coming. We appreciate every single one. If you missed our newsletter last week, you might have missed the announcement that Scalay Sisters now has a forum of its own thanks to Misty's hard work. Head on over to scalaysisters.com join to sign up. The main purpose of the forum is to help you find your sisters. Whether you are organizing real-life meetings or virtual ones like what Amber and I discussed in Episode 7, we really want to help you connect. We'll also be giving you some podcast bonuses that I like to call the Cutting Room Floor Bonus. 
I often cut out bits of conversation in order to keep the length of the podcast episodes down. And if any of those are worth listening to, from now on, we'll be posting them in the forum. A short snippet from this episode is already there, in fact. I hope to see you over the summer in the forum because this is the last episode of season one. That's right. Thank you all for making it such a wonderful first season for us. We don't plan to be back until autumn. I'm building the plans for season two right now, so if you have any requests of topics or maybe guests you want us to have on the show, whatever, you can let us know, either in our forum or on the Scalay Sisters Facebook page. Those are probably the two best places to let us know. Until then, we want to remind you once again that homeschooling is a marathon. You needn't run alone. So open up your eyes and look around you. Find your sisters. Well, let's ca- let's capture like a full second of silence just to make sure for both okay. of us because it'll... I'm already bored. (laughs) (laughs) It must have been a second. (laughs) I didn't underline it. Ah, I got it. You could just delete this part. (laughs) This whole episode is a trap. (laughs) (laughs) Do, 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 finding it. Oh, I was going to (laughs) answer. You wrote it. (laughs) I forgot.